Hello, and welcome to Looks Familiar, the show that remembers that the actual 7-inch single of Dreamtime by Daryl Hall was a good 20 seconds shorter than the version played on the radio. I'm guessing that not even Daryl Hall himself noticed that. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is writer, artist and Dom, Juliet Brando. Juliet, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Oh, hello. I've got nothing to promote, but I am at Slide Rules You. Okay, well, I can't think of a good way of getting into your first choice, but other than that, it's something where the theme music, which you're about to hear, has haunted me quite a lot over the years, and I'm kind of not looking forward to hearing it again. Hello? as much as they like. If you're clever, people soon find they need you. Thank you. Okay, that, with the vocal interjections making little sense without the visuals, is a theme music from Gideon. Juliet, who was Gideon? So Gideon, he was a duck, and it kind of followed the story of the ugly duckling. A little bit. He was an ugly duckling, but instead of being a swan, it turns out he was just an ugly duck. He just had a really long neck. It turns out he was based on a book from the 1920s, and then he became a cartoon in the 1970s in France. Basically, I got banned from watching him when I was a tiny child. My mum told me later, I don't remember this, but my mum told me that I was inconsolable. Every time Gideon ended, I would be crying for about two hours and saying, come back, Gideon. Sorry, that's my parrot screaming in the background, by the way. That's Digby the parrot. He's screaming because he's not involved in this. I think Gideon's given me a friendship with birds. But yeah, as a sort of one or two year old, I was inconsolable when Gideon had finished, cried for hours and I'd be like, come back, Gideon. And so my mum had to ban me from watching him. Well, as you say, it was originally French, but it was dubbed by ITV with Tim Brooke Taylor doing all of the voices in it. And apparently it was first shown in 1979 and repeated right through to 1985. So that's the main thing I remember is it seemed to be on forever, which makes it all the weirder that people really have forgotten it. But like I say, it bothered me a bit because they had that kind of, that dislocated ambience where you didn't know it was French when you were that age when you saw it, but it just looked different. It felt a bit different. Sometimes the storyline's a bit more brutal. I remember one about a ferret killing some of the animals. A ferret kicked a rabbit to death and you could tell they were dead because they had no eyes. And then Gideon killed the ferret. Gideon and his friends, they got a pipe and lured the ferret down the pipe and drowned it 
And then they may or may not have killed a fisherman. So the fisherman then fished up the dead ferret that Gideon and his friends had lured to his death. And then the fish then said to Gideon, well, we can't have our children swimming out here right now because there's a fisherman there. And so Gideon was like, well, I'll sort that. And somehow Gideon, we didn't see what had happened to the fisherman, but I think they drowned him. And yet, you know, the opening title's positive that Gideon was shunned by society because of his freakishly long neck. (laughs) He went around saying, I'm good and one day people will realise it. And he proved that in the opening titles by using his neck as a bridge. But it's a bit like kind of the be kind mob at the moment. He's actually concealing a not very pleasant nature, I think. He was the joker of his time. Yeah, different times, different times. But yeah, Gideon, there was a death toll. But I found that theme tune really weird and haunting. It's got that sort of proggy post-Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds synth atmosphere to it. You know, that kind of folky moogs that were kind of out of date even by 1979. Apparently it's by Alan Parker, who was in Blue Mink earlier in the 70s and did a lot of TV themes around this time. But it's very, very odd. You know, when you consider the other things that were on children's ITV around that time, like Chorton the Wheelies and Jamie and the Magic Torch, you know, with the big, jaunty theme music, you've got this weird, sad, reflective thing. Kind of folk horror theme tune. Almost sort of, I don't want to say hauntology, but almost there's something kind of dark there. Yeah, it's like something you would have heard on the soundtrack with early 70s British horror film, actually, which, given what they're doing to fishermen in this, isn't that far off the mark. (laughs) Yeah, Gideon was an adorable serial killer. (laughs) Yeah, there was something very dark there. But I loved Gideon. When I was about 11, I befriended a lovely duck who I named Ducky. The kind of holidays I went on when I was a child, we didn't go on foreign holidays. We went on camping holidays and holidays to the Lake District and to Devon and places like that. We rented a chalet and a complex in the Lake District and I made friends with a lovely, lovely long-necked duck. This is setting out something for the future of my life where I've mostly just befriended lovely animals. But Ducky, she would come and knock for me on the door of this chalet every morning. And then we'd just hang out all day. And I used to just stroke her like a lovely cat. And I would feed her my cereal. And and yeah, basically, I think this set something out as me in the future, just having friends who were lovely animals instead of humans. <laughs> I did mention Tim Brooke Taylor narrated this, and it's quite an odd thing when you look back about how big the goodies were at that point. That even at that age, I remember thinking, oh, it's one of the goodies doing it. And yet, they haven't, although, you know, they are still revered to an extent, and, you know, their shows are still much funnier than a lot of their contemporaries are. It's Mm. odd how they lost that kind of, they were the kind of pop stars of comedy of the 70s. And yet, you know, only a couple of years after this, they obviously they went to ITV and as so often happens, you know, their audience didn't go with them and it didn't quite work. They kind of called it a day. It was a bit with her goodies and they all went off and did individual things a bit in the Gideon mould. But it's kind of odd that, you know, they were big to the extent that, you know, he was specifically got in because of the goodies to do this, I think. And then shortly afterwards, it was almost as like if they hadn't existed, even though they kept doing stuff as a trio, just not as the goodies. I remember the goodies, but only slightly because I was very slightly too young for that. And I remember my mum talking about them, but I didn't know that much about them. And I didn't know the reference until very recently, just looking back at Gideon. And I didn't realise that it was kind of comedy royalty. The other weird thing, though, is that 
so many of these ITV children's shows just aren't remembered, the lunchtime preschool ones, in the way that the BBC ones are. I think they were probably repeated as much, if not more. Is it because they're all overshadowed by Rainbow? I don't know. (laughs) Everything is overshadowed by Rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm guessing that your next choice, to an extent, may have been overshadowed by Rainbow, and that might have been part of their problem. This is a record I completely forgot about until you mentioned it, and I'm wondering if anyone else is going to remember it now. Hit it hard, playing games in the shadows Fall asleep, make a wish, and the bag goes I can dream, can I? When I close my eyes It's the world Well, you might be thinking that sounds a bit like Escaping by Diana Carroll, but not quite. Well, you'd be absolutely right there. Juliet, who was this and why were they doing her song? This was Escaping by Asia Blue. And it turns out that was also a cover. I've only found this out very recently, just looking it up, because I love this song. And it got a lot of airplay on Radio 1 at the time, but it didn't actually get into the top 40, I found out. Also, again, this may be apocryphal. I only know this from looking into the comments below the video on YouTube. And the video is a very, very wonky sort of VHS video that sort of skips a little bit and goes a bit but in the comments it said that the three women who sang it they only got five grand each for singing it and their album got shelved they made a whole album but none of us will ever hear it basically it's a cover of an original song that was popular in New Zealand a few years before that but I'd not heard it and they were really really good I loved this song and it's when I listened to the podcast talking about lost songs songs that had kind of gone down a time hole with Mitch Ben I think you were talking to there are some songs that do go just go down a time hole and just get lost and I think this was one of them and I loved it Well, that YouTube comment does appear to be correct, because as far as I can tell, they did three singles all in 1992. And as you say, an album that didn't come out, which was also called Escaping, where according to Discogs, the only copy that has well escaped is a cassette promo with, you know, like a typeset cover. There are lots of songs on there, you know, titles that have no idea how they go. And apparently the version of Escaping on there is different. It's one of the remixes in the CD single. And the odd thing is, they seem to have been, although they did didn't have any real success quite high profile at the time but normally when you get bands like that who you know had a couple of well received if not huge hit singles and have an unreleased album there's normally all kinds of like pop bloggers clamoring for a release of it and there isn't with these it's not like there are all those 80s acts that had a second album that didn't come out where the people pushing for it to be released boys wonder the indie band their album swankers still hasn't come out and i would love to hear that in full and you know you have to mention that on twitter and people reply saying straight away love to hear the album asia blue they just seem to have been i've got a theory about why this is but completely forgotten about and yet they were really heavily pushed at the time but i think it was because they came exactly in as anyone who's watching the top of the pops repeats on bbc4 at the moment will know a kind of weird gap where between about 1991 
and late 1993 pop music didn't seem to know what it was doing it didn't know what it wanted and there were a load of kind of soul acts like these like Donny, Alison Limerick people like that who put out really good singles and just came and went just like that as though there was nowhere to slot them in because there was nothing actually going on you know there was grunge and there was rave and there wasn't really much going on. I mean even take that took about four singles to become successful just nobody knew what to do with this stuff so they kind of just ignored it well also because of the time hole again like there are so many bands that just fall down a time hole i mean i tried to be a singer for a little while and i was not great at it to be honest i loved writing songs and i loved singing but i was not great but i did some session vocals back in about sort of the early 2000s and there was a song that i sang on and it was called breathe by Mulsanne, that was the name that was given to it. It was a cover of a song by Telepop Music. It was used on reality TV shows. It was used on adverts. It was in the background of various things. I got paid 150 quid for the session and I didn't know where the song, you know, because I, I needed the money. I was skint. I didn't know where the song was going to go. Then I heard it. I recognised it apart from the original that it was covering. I recognised my own voice. And the weirdest things were... I remember hearing in the background of an argument between Nate and Brenda on Six Feet Under, which was my <laughs> at the time. And I was like, holy fuck, my voice is in the background of my favourite programme. I remember being in the background of an autopsy on CSI. I remember a friend of mine who lived in Italy at the time phoning me up in the middle of the night. She was in a nightclub and she phoned me up and said, your song is playing in the background. Listen, it was the weirdest thing because this song kind of went all over the place. But then I Googled it a while ago just to see kind of what its situation was now. And somebody who'd written the kind of wiki on Last FM had said this was a misprint. This was telepop music used on because it went on a lot of the compilation chill out albums at the time and this person wrote yeah this this is a misprint this is just telepop music i was like no no <laughs> they, they said this band does not exist this artist does not exist i was like i exist i exist and i had an existential crisis and tried to change it on the wiki but i didn't have the power the sort of editor power to change it so i put it out on youtube instead and just put an explanation saying i do and yeah i am malsan well me and two producers in a soho studio in 2002 so if you hear a kind of chill out song called breathe by malsan that's my voice on that you're actually on youtube in higher quality than asia blue really blood hell it's like you say they've only got that ropey video of escaping the remix is higher quality there's a remix one on higher quality on there because i searched it and we've fallen down a time hole i did find out while i was researching this i'm astonished by this the producer and actually i can't say writer because he co-wrote quite a few of the songs with them was a guy called barry blue mm. who was kind of a late comer to glam rock in the 70s he did two belting singles dancing on a saturday night and do you want to dance he then did a couple of albums which did nothing but seemed to have had about eight million songs on them each and then he just became a writer and producer and kept reusing you know songs of his that failed but yeah he was behind asia blue which makes sense when you think about the blue and barry blue but i had no idea about that at all you know that was somebody who had he continued performing like his contemporaries he would have been considered you know old hat absolutely naff by the early 90s 
Ortiz. But there he is doing this really up-to-the-minute record. And it just goes to show that sometimes if you stop trading on your former glories and find new ones, then, you know, you don't become as irrelevant. Also, the fact that three versions of this proper banging song came out, but the middle version, Asia Blue, that's my version. That's my favourite. Yeah, because the earlier one, which I think is by Margaret Ehrlich, I think it is, is a bit, it's kind of surfing the Enya wave a little bit. It's got sort of ambient noises in it. It doesn't really do the song that much justice, although it was number one in New Zealand, apparently. And the Diana Carroll one's just a bit too polished. And this kind of sounds, although it's very slick, it's got the early 90s rawness to it. It's a bit like somebody told Wilson Phillips not to brush their hair. It was 1992. In 1992, we're all very, very spiritual. You know, we're all into astrology and crystals and all of that. It was 1992. It was the sort of neo-hippie wave. It was sort of neo-hippie rave culture. There was something about that song that baked in there. <laughs> okay, well, for your next choice, we're jumping back a little bit in time to something that really wasn't very spiritual at all. We've been watching The Cuckoo's Sister. Ah, well, in that case, have a look at this. Ill-mannered little old cow. Rosie, please. Oh, don't worry on my part. You can't expect manners from... <laughs> Rosie! <laughs> right, that's it, I'm off. You can look for another domestic, Mrs. Seaton. I've had me lot. Oh, but Mrs. Trapp... And mark my words, you'll have nothing but trouble from that one. She's no good. You silly cow, I'll do you! Are we never to have any peace in this house? Not while you've got that Shut little... Shut up! Please! <laughs> <laughs> That's just the snippets. You'll see the rest tomorrow. It's the final part. And, of course, it's at five past five. Okay, that was unmistakably Philip Schofield introducing a preview of that week's episode of The Cuckoo Sister, a 1986 children's BBC drama. Juliet, why is this stuck in your memory? Well, I remember this child was a bit of a proto-punk. It was quite a dark story. It was based on a book and it was about, again, very, very dark children's tv in those days was quite dark this was about a middle class family that had a dark secret and the dark secret was that they'd had a stolen baby that the little sister didn't know about she didn't know she'd got an older sister that had been stolen from a pram when she was a child so this very rude it was kind of almost like a kind of child's eastenders at the time this sort of angry punk child had turned up and said i'm your big sister and i'm your daughter she was very kind of cockney a tiny punk and yeah she was very very rude and i loved that and you know this girl was kind of an icon to me because she was very rude and she dyed her hair purple and i remember a time when I'd been watching it and my mum had turned up on the school run to pick me up from school and she was talking to another of the mothers and I was, you know, I just wanted to go home and so I just went, shut up! <laughs> and, like, I looked at me and my mum was like, you know, that that's wrong. You shouldn't talk to people like that. <laughs> and this child, this cuckoo sister, she talked like people in EastEnders. I wasn't allowed to watch EastEnders back then because I was a bit young and my mum thought it would just teach me bad manners. And, you know, rightly so, it turns out. <laughs> but, yeah, this girl was like, ah, oh, you cow, you cow, shut up, I'll do ya. Yeah, she was an angry little punk child. And, yeah, it was marvellous. Well, I remember it really clearly because it was that point where I've never quite been sure what happened, but it was like somebody flicked a switch in Children's BBC in 1985 and it suddenly went more gritty and more kind of 
controversy baiting. I mean, there were things like Joanne Shepherd talked on here about the December Rose, which had some, you know, it was really bleak historical drama, but had some very, very strong language in it for a children's show. I mean, it would still be considered strong now. There were things like, there's running scared about the girl who her family had to hide some evidence from a really heavy East End gangster who was played by Chris Ellison, who was Burnside for the bill. Mm. And they really did go down some very dark avenues. And this was really, really unusual because, as you say, first of all, there was the whole East Endersy vibe to it, which, you know, was, it wasn't 100% a new thing to children's BBC because, let's be honest, you know, at the very least, Grange Hill had been going for a couple of years. But there was the fact that the two girls were Kate was the sister who hadn't been abducted <laughs> as a baby and Rosie was the punky one and the weird thing was normally in a drama like that it would be Kate you know the kind of genteel middle class girl that you'd be on the side of but it was actually Rosie because Kate is depicted as horrible spoiled a snob who Ooh. blames her mother for her older sister being abducted I remember a bit where she's talking to some of her friends and they say she's not our sort and also she destroys the one piece of evidence that links Rosie to the family which is a photograph of somebody who looks like her. Rosie is really quite sympathetic in a lot of ways and they do end by, if I remember rightly, they bond with each other over dissatisfaction with their mother, don't they? Which is very daring. One thing I remember was that the punk child used to call the little sister Litlan and <laughs> that stuck with me. I still, anybody who's younger than me, even if they're like, you know, in their 30s, I still call them Litlan. It's a sort of bonding thing. It's like, you know, they're my little sister, then they're my little brother. I, I always call them Litlan because that's the first time I'd ever heard anybody call somebody that. <laughs> find out that a number of the cast including Joanna Joseph who was Kate you know uh, people have had quite long careers but Shelley Measures who was Rosie you know she's so brilliant in this I mean I remember her facial expressions being absolutely spot on for somebody with a slightly punky attitude not liking the world she's being thrust into she doesn't appear to have done anything else apart from this which you do quite often find with children's TV but it seems really a bit of a shame with her because she was so good at, you know so memorable in this she did have a look of sort of you know in the 80s when you get regional TV programmes about an arts festival there was always a certain kind of troop of women doing a stage show where they all had that kind of punky short haired look and the kind of slightly sunken features I'm still there I'm still in that place I'm still <laughs> that's me <laughs> were you inspired image wise by her do you think I think probably subconsciously again I mean you know when we get to one of my future things I think there's a lot that subconsciously inspired me it's only kind of looking back on these memories what has kind of subconsciously created the person I am now <laughs> okay well I'm hoping that your next choice didn't really subconsciously create the person you are now because that would open up a lot of questions anyway here's the opening theme because we'll have a bit more to say about the closing theme later on Okay, that was the opening from the Telebugs, a children's ITV programme, which, to be honest with you, I didn't really see at the time, and I wonder if it's because, looking at the dates of it, I would have been watching The Cuckoo Sister. But anyway, Julia, who were they? Well, they were little shits. That's who they were. <laughs> <laughs> 
they were kind of like almost proto Teletubbies, except the televisions were in their faces. Computers were quite new in those days. And so they were sort of, they were seen as sort of futuristic. Yeah, they were supposed sort of funny little flying around superhero creatures. But I was inspired by the baddie, as I always have been. Also, oh my God, the theme tune, such an earworm. Having not seen it in however many years it's been since it was on, it was, I think, 1986 it came out. I think there are about a million episodes, which I don't remember at all. Yeah, the theme tune, it sticks in my head. The baddie lady was called Arcadia. She was a punk and she had cool makeup and she was a sort of like proto kind of hacker gamer. She had her own little robot army. She was a cockney and she had a little kind of mohawk and she was always trying to absolutely fuck up these little shits who were just flying around doing i don't know stupid shit i don't know what the fucking telebugs were doing but she was always trying to fuck them up (laughs) (laughs) i loved her growing up i absolutely loved her and i don't even think she was in that many episodes but i always watched it hoping she'd be in them because she was brilliant again a little bit like the cuckoo sister she was a bit punky and rude and very cool well looking at it now i'm wondering if the reason i didn't really watch it was because i had a bit of a thing at that point about you know i was a kid i didn't know that much about computers but i knew enough to know when adults who didn't know anything about computers were doing things for children (laughs) say look this is new and exciting like there was a children's itv magazine show called video and chip that sort of thing and you know the b like the children's bbc links being done by quote computer graphics that's really is kind of oh you like this don't you and looking at this the names of the telebugs were chip who was coordinated hexadecimal information processor samantha solar activated micro automated non-interference hearing apparatus and bug binary unmanned gamma camera which doesn't quite work really because that should be bug co basically get proper names don't just use words that you've seen in the sunday telegraph in a feature with paul daniel saying i'm an early adopter of home computing so should you be i don't know something about it will have felt really patronizing to me at that age so that's probably why i avoided it even as a tiny child it was patronizing to me and i was like fuck those cunts sorry (laughs) (laughs) oh god i hated them i hated them i hated them so much i mean they had a very catchy theme tune but i was fully team arcadia i just i wanted to kill them i wanted to kill them absolutely they were horrible they were horrible horrible creatures and i wanted to kill them But did you mean the start or the end theme was really catchy? Oh, I don't, what was the end theme? Well, apparently, there were like three batches of episodes I made. The first just had the start theme on the end. The second had a song called I Have a Heart, which at that stage was sung Jeez. by Susie Westerby, who did the voice of Samantha. But for the third batch, it was sung by George McRae, the 70s Rock Your Baby hit maker, who later did Love. a single of it. I have no memory of this. I only remember the opening theme is just tattooed into my brain forever. Literally, this morning I woke up with it in my head. It's never stopped. It's like a curse. But, you know, I I have no memory of these end themes. I have no memory of people singing things on them. I just remember the weird little beepy fucking... uh, Oh, God, I hate them. I hate them. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> I think a measure of how dislikable you might have found them would be reflected in the fact that the only other thing I really remember about them was Smash Hits went through a phase of, you know, if like somebody like, and we might be coming back to him in a bit, Bono was being really pretentious in their answers to him, you know, would say, we don't really care about that here. We only care about the telly books. <laughs> It's kind of, it's a put down of them and pretentious pop stars at the same time. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. No, I hate them. I hate their stupid little fucking telly faces. I am fully Team Arcadia. She was amazing. I love her. She is a brilliant cartoon punk who just hates them. And I am entirely on her side. <laughs> Well, I've got a fact about them that might make you hate them even more, which is that it was made for the animators on it. Later went on to do things like the Animals of Farthing Woods. You know, so they had quite successful careers, but it was made for the ITV company TVS, which lost its franchise in the early 90s and went through, you know, receivership in a couple of different hands of the archives, eventually ending up bizarrely owned by Disney. And now <laughs> nobody knows where the master tapes of half, well, I say half, Oh, probably about 90% of their output is. And there's things like That's Love, the big ITV sitcom of the 80s. Most of that's missing. Nobody knows where Cat's Eyes is. Loads of children's ITV programs like Letty and Henry's Leg that were repeated loads. There's no sign of them. The Boy Who Won the Pools has gone AWOL. The Telebugs exists in full. Oh, fuck them. <laughs> oh, my God. They thought it's time for and I hate them even more. Oh, my God. Oh my god, those little fucking shits. Fuck the fucking telly bucks. So do you think Asia Blue might have more success if they've done a couple of I think we need to team up with Asia Blue into a sort of army and just fuck up the telly bucks. Well, funnily enough, you might be able to use your next choice for that very purpose. Okay, in the absence of anything sensible I could use as a clip for that, that was Airhead, the early 90s indie band. But we're actually talking about slopperish bracelets here. Julia, what were they? It was a terrible craze. From about 1991, and at school, everybody had slap wrist bracelets. They were like a tape measure, but a bracelet. And they were covered in fabric, and you kind of smacked them around your wrist, and they became a bracelet. I had a bit of a look into this, and the person who invented them, he was very careful to sort of fully put the fabric around them and seal it perfectly so it wouldn't become a fucking weapon. But it turns out as soon as he'd invented it, there were a lot of imports from China of these same bracelets because they were a bit of a craze. In America, they had the properly sealed ones. In England, it turns out we had the weaponized Chinese version. And <laughs> they got banned from my school because, again, in 1991, if you were at school, everything was either a weapon or something you could get high on. I mean, I was going to say that, you know, it is usually bizarre the things that get banned in schools. I mean, I remember, as I've mentioned on here before, and actually did some tricks with it live on the show the fancy yo-yos from the late 80s got banned in my school which was annoying for me because I was emerging <laughs> as King Yo-Yo I just remember a teacher saying to me that could cause somebody to lose an eye it was about the 
the size of a CD. That was the whole point of it. They were massive. These phrases that people just parroted out on repeat just to shut children down. Half the time, it didn't make any sense. But normally, things banned in schools, like we've had on here previously, the Scoopy Lou that Emma Burnell talked about, all the unbranded soluble cola tablets that got Gary Bainbridge in so much trouble. But <laughs> this is an actual weapon. It is usable. It's got nasty-looking <laughs> steel springs inside. Well, the slap wrists, I remember because the fabric would come off at the sides and they'd just become a blade. And it kind of, it just takes me back to going on a school trip to the River Mole to look at Oxbow Lakes and Nicholas Baxter falling into an Oxbow Lake. And us all just sort of just smacking each other with these fucking blades. Could I ask, did they just fall in just randomly? <laughs> I think he was messing about. Again, it's like, you know, when you're at school, when you're at, sort of just before being a teenager, you go on a boring school trip, of course somebody's going to fall into an Oxbow Lake. I mean, it's very boring if somebody doesn't fall in but yeah also everybody was just cutting each other with slap wrists again because the, the, the material would always come off of the sides of them so you just end up with just a perfect you'd have a bracelet that was also a weapon and everybody had them and it was marvellous it was like Mad Max well there's so much irony to the fact that they were invented by a teacher oh yeah he shot himself in the foot <laughs> Or he's like he's himself in the foot. But what else do you remember being banned from your school? Because something that's come into my mind a lot at the moment was I know someone in my year had the spitting image book confiscated. The main thing that upset the teachers was a disrespectful picture of Prince Andrew. I don't think that really carries the same weight now. But, you know, there were all kinds of things I remember being usually completely harmless things. And I think it was the idea that fights might develop over ownership of things more than potential weaponization of say Batman trading cards or anything. Not dangerous as such but marbles were a big deal for a while and my first boyfriend he was yeah again we weren't really we were boyfriend and girlfriend but not in a sort of boyfriend and girlfriend way he asked me out and I was like oh well then and then I bought him a Roxette single which one I don't know I can't remember it might have been dressed for success but that might have been later I don't know but I remember I bought him a Roxette single on vinyl and he bought me a terrible cuddly toy and some awful earrings but also I accidentally got him expelled he'd stolen some marbles from people's pockets in the cloakroom and then again I only said it as a joke the school playground there was a grassy bit and it was very muddy and he got a worm out and I said it would be hilarious for him to put the worm in Mr Atkins's coffee and I only said it as a joke but then he actually did it and then he got expelled and sent to the school that only expelled people were allowed to go to it kind of changed the whole course of his life and I feel really bad about that if you're listening sorry Liam I do remember on school trips teachers getting unnecessarily exercised about the idea that yeah, for a start, I never knew anyone that went to France and got a flick comb. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, were they real? Did anyone... Why would anyone want a comb that flicked out? Well, again, I remember we went on a French trip and lots of the boys had bought flick knives and then had to hide them. We, our coach got stopped and all the boys were trying to hide their flick knives because they bought them at this market where you can buy flick knives. Everybody bought flick knives because, you know... <laughs> because slap wrists have been banned. So do slap wrists still exist? Have they made the comeback? Apparently so, because I googled it and apparently like I think is it like an Apple Watch trap or something that you can get now that is a slap wrist <laughs> what an eye slap wrist <laughs> apparently I don't know I don't think it has like a sort of blade side quest but yeah there's some kind of thing you can get now that's similar I've not gone down there because I you know I don't want my search history to get yeah all into that <laughs> but 
Listen, you should see the search history I end up with after researching some of these shows. I'll just name him because Bob Fisher chose a book called Rude Food, which <laughs> took some finding on Amazon. You should have seen the suggestions I got for months after that. Okay, well, we're still not moving that far out of that area for your next choice, because there were certain characters in this that I wouldn't be surprised if they were carrying weaponized slap wrists. (laughs) This is a story about dolls in a doll's house. If you remember, Totty, the farthing wooden doll, had been lent to an exhibition. But now she was home again, and everything in the house seemed perfect. Okay, completely odds with my intro to it there, but that was the introduction to Totty, the story of a doll's house, 1984 BBC stop-motion animation series. Julia, this is very sinister, isn't it? It was absolutely... Oh, it was... There was a doll called March Payne in this. Again, it all started off very kind of... Not twee, but sort of pleasantly kind of comfortable like Bagpuss and it was made by some of the same people as Bagpuss it was comfortable it was lovely it was a story of a doll's house it was stop motion animation and these dolls they were lovely I adored them they were lovely and then March Payne March Payne the evil doll came in and she was a very pretty doll and she had eyes that moved and eyes that closed when you laid her down oh my god when it comes to evil dolls evil dolls in fiction Chucky or Annabelle, they've got nothing on her. She was the most evil doll that's ever existed. Totty, the story of a doll's house. It had a really a nice, pleasant number of dolls living in there. They were all living a lovely doll's house life. And then March Payne came in and she was horrible. Again, as a tiny child watching this, I had never seen death on screen, you know, apart from maybe in Giddy in the Dark, but it didn't count. They were cartoons. These were actual dolls. And March Payne, she decided that she would kill apple who was the baby doll for some reason there was a again this was literally a doll's house for some reason there was an open flame in the doll's house so apple's mum birdie went to save him and then she burned alive yeah she was very she was made out of flammable materials and so she burned alive on screen and i i can't find any kind of trace of this except people talking about it but i remember it very clearly as a child march Payne had killed her and at the same time, my auntie Vera had died. But in my head, it kind of got jumbled up. And I had this dream that auntie Vera had died of some kind of spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> and so in my child head, auntie Vera had burned down. God, it was dark. It really, really was. And given that I had seen, because it wasn't aimed at me, it was slightly older, and this is the way things worked, then. it was aimed at girls rather than boys, let's be honest about that. You know, you mentioned it was made by small films, also made Bagpuss and the Clangers and so on, which I adored them, and I remember kind of almost seeing this and thinking, they've sold out, they've got like Dallas and Dynasty, <laughs> it was about, you know, a power struggle for control of a doll's house. But I remember seeing the ending of it, what I really remember was that March Payne gets put in a museum, which kind of like Doll Alcatraz trash i suppose <laughs> and the other dolls kind of rationalized it by saying birdie looked beautiful while she was on fire 
the really spooky thing about it is the dolls all move, but the humans who were played by, like Oliver Postgate, Peter Furman, their families, Ruma Godden, who wrote the original book it's based on, is one of the people. They're all like still images. <laughs> like they're frozen in time and the dolls are moving. That makes it even more creepy. And my initial analysis could not be more off beam, really. Although I imagine there probably was a storyline in Dynasty at some point about somebody <laughs> going on fire. But... <laughs> she died. She literally died. And I was like, oh my God. I've never seen anybody die on TV. <laughs> well, apart from the ferret and the, possibly the fisherman and the rabbit in Gideon. But oh my God. Oh my God. She died. And that just, it really struck me. I was like, oh my God. She's dead. Again, like, you know, as a, as a child. What, what was it, like 1985 or six? Something like 84. Because there's an interesting story about it. The BBC were very nervous about it, even though it did get repeated a couple of times. Yeah. But part of the agreement of showing it was that they did adapt one of the later books, Totty a Doll's Wish, which was a bit more upbeat, which was broadcast in 1986. But the thing was, because it was made by small films, not for the BBC, and rarely for them was an entirely independent production. The BBC didn't have to keep, you know, because it was a boring program, didn't keep their copies of it. Small films don't know what happened to their copies. Oh, blimey. So that only exists on, like, really manky off-air VHSs. Bloody. The terrifying one, oh, yeah, you can get that on DVD, it's been all cleaned up and everything. <laughs> and the, the lighter, more fun one has disappeared. Wow. I mean, it was beautiful to look at. It was beautifully made. It was gorgeous. But, oh, fuck, it was bleak. Well, apparently there are rumours that Puffin Books, I think, who published it, were kind of saying, are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) But it was kind of a tipping of the scales of, I mean, Bagpuss has that kind of creepy edge in a way, but in a more kind of reassuring, pleasant way. And the Clangers isn't really creepy, but it's quite desolate. Same goes for Nog in the Nog. And, you know, all their previous programs have got that balance right. But here, yeah. I don't know what was going on. Whether it was because... No, it's unfair of me to say it's because the whole video nasty thing was going on and so on. But they appear to have thought, yeah, let's push the boat out. And <laughs> I don't think it was the right thing to do, really. Well, what was your relationship, given this has traumatised you so much, with dolls going forward? from this weirdly i was never really that into dolls as a child i always liked teddy bears and cat dolls and stuff i was never really into like baby dolls always freaked me out and i think maybe it's a kind of being an older sister thing because my younger sister i love her she's brilliant but as a tiny child i really you know i hated babies because my mum ended up having to look after everybody else's babies as well because she'd stopped working to have me and then she had my sister two years later and so she ended up looking after the children of all the other mums who'd gone back to work. When I was first born, my parents had a cat, Fonzie, and Fonzie was brilliant. And when I was first born, he hated me because he'd been the baby before. And he saw this baby and was like, oh, who the fuck is this little pink weird person who's taking up all the attention and he hated me you know and I didn't understand why he hated me and then my sister was born two years later and suddenly she had all the attention and I you know I mean my mum I think had quite a hard time like looking after two small humans and I was like who the 
fuck is this little pink person? <laughs> and Fonzie then took me under his wing and he was like, okay, you're with me now, mate. <laughs> and, and so, so yeah, Fon- Fonzie and I, we were allies. We, we had a mutual enemy. Yes, when I was small, I never really liked sort of dolls and baby dolls or anything like that. You know, I liked creatures. I liked cats and teddy bears and dolls. I always kind of thought of as just horrible babies. <laughs> So I'm guessing you never got dolls brackets they want to play with you out in the video shop. Jesus, God, no. <laughs> the cover of that used to freak me out. It really did. I don't mind Tell me about this horror. It's one of those 80s straight-to-video horrors about, you know, possessed dolls, but it just had a cover with, you know, like creepy Victorian dolls, but like all broken. And it just said dolls in sort of horror lettering. They want to play with you. That was all I needed to know about that film. <laughs> well, we get back onto a bit of an upbeat trajectory with your last choice, which, at the very least, you could have shaken this up and used it to put out birdies. <laughs> Sinister Connections. One, Missing Squadron. Two, Alligators in City Sewers. Three, Berlin Wall Falls. Four, Coca-Cola Launch Tab Clear, a sugar-free soft drink with a mysterious new flavor and completely clear. Suddenly, everything becomes clear. Head of Soviet forces is served Tab Clear in very cold glass, which sticks to his lip. He complains of glass frost. His generals hear glasnost. The Berlin Wall falls. Kremlin files are flung open to reveal the alligators in city sewers are, in fact, Russian mini-subs. Abandoned without maintenance, the sub self-destruct. The resultant cloud of steam drifts over the Bermuda Triangle, causing the disappearance of 371 Squadron. Or so they claimed when they were later discovered in Big Lou's Waikiki Bar on Sunset Strip. Tab clear. Suddenly, everything is clear. Try it. Okay, as I'll come back to, that was one of the heavily stylized ads for Tab Clear, a drink that was only around for a very short amount of time, but which I absolutely loved, and I would love them to bring it back. Juliet, do you feel the same? Yeah, I'm up for that. I remember the first time I had it, I was walking through Brighton Station. It must have been like about 1994. They were giving out free samples of it. They had all these pretty girls in a sort of PR thing. They were just giving out like free glasses of it. And I was like, well, this is great. This is Coca-Cola that doesn't stain your teeth. Because as a baby goth, I wore a lot of sort of dark lipstick and pale face. And so my teeth look really yellow in comparison. Also, I drink a lot of like red wine and I drink coffee. And so, yeah, my teeth stain really easily and it really shows. So Tab Clear was marvellous. And it had, despite what people have got to say online, it had a distinctive taste, which I think was to do with the fact there were no colourings in it. But yeah, it was clear cola from Coca-Cola. I think it was about roughly December 1992 to sort of early 1994 it was around it never quite got a foothold and there are rumours that it was deliberately launched with the intention of failing to sabotage Crystal Pepsi because Pepsi had found (laughs) it's basically the same idea but they found a new kind of way of penetrating the advertising sphere with that and it was kind of we're going to stop them by doing the same thing but doing it really badly I really liked it but the really odd thing was it was very heavily hyped over here when it was launched 
But with these ads that were basically, I say they were ripping off the whole YouTube Zoo TV thing, except there are two caveats of that, which is one, Zoo TV was just things, you know, other people's ideas that Bono had taken and gone, oh, <laughs> do you not see over the top of? Secondly, Zoo TV was only clever to people who bought Rattle and Hum. No offence intended to you two fans, but it wasn't quite the avant-garde art that it gets made out to be. And I think being a like pale imitation of that, these adverts are more annoying than revolutionary. I remember getting really fed up with them in the ad breaks because they thought they were cleverer than they were. The jokes that they thought were really hilarious, like the one in the clip I used about Glass Frost and Glasnost, that's not actually a joke. That isn't funny. It doesn't work. And probably that contributed to it. You know, ironically, I hated the adverts and bought loads of it. And I remember when it was phased out, there was a discount shop opposite Liverpool Central where, again, it's back to the whole thing I keep bringing up on here. How did things like rumours, like, you know, news spread in the days before we had the internet, before we had mobiles? But I remember somehow word getting round that a load of cans were being sold off cheap in the discount store because they'd been taken off the market. And, you know, all these, like, A-level age indie types flocking in there and just loading up their pockets with dozens of cans of it. See, I have no memory of adverts for it at all. I just remember it existing. That's literally it. And I kind of love that my favourite drink was designed as a suicide mission. It was... All I knew was that they'd given me a free sample at Brighton Station. I was like, well, this is great. I'm into this. So I just kept buying it. But I don't remember adverts for it. I don't remember anything except for just sort of it being in shops and just, you know, the first time I drank it, just being in Brighton Station, a pretty lady gave it to me for free. (laughs) The other weird thing about it is, why is it called Tab Clear? Well, in America, I think it's been discontinued now, but for a long time. There was Tab, which was kind of a healthy alternative to Coke, promoted by Coca-Cola. or You know, so they said, in relative terms, it was healthy. But obviously, Tab Clear was a variant of that. But over here, we didn't have Tab, as far as I know. It's a sort of thing where... But Marty McFly mentions it in Back to the Future, doesn't he? And it's a joke that didn't carry over here. Mm. So was Tab Clear healthy in any way? Or or was it just not teeth-staining? I think it was healthy Er, I remember it in the same thing as when again like it was sort of mid 90s sort of early to mid 90s and I remember my friend and me again where we used to go to Brighton every weekend we would drink that and then we were trying to we were trying to quit smoking and so we started smoking those herbal cigarettes you could get in Holland and Barrett for like one pound something they were like no nicotine cigarettes but they really smelled like cat piss and so I remember drinking tab clear and smoking these like non-nicotine Holland and Barrett cat piss cigarettes <laughs> and we were trying to be trying to be sort of healthy and not staying on teeth. <laughs> oh god we were a disaster okay well if I said you could bring back tab clear but you had to have the telly bugs back with oh, it no, what would you no, say no 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 nothing is worth bringing back the fucking telly bugs <laughs> no they they they, 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 they are <laughs> history will not look on them fondly okay well we'll have the asia blue album instead julia it's been brilliant thank you (laughs) something is probably screaming in the background Top of the Box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives of the Eighth to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.
Just believe.